You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would do two things, that you would send your spirit to show us our need for Jesus and that you would give him to us. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be listening to the word from Psalm 84 today. It's our responsive reading, so if you want to open there and check that out, or open to page 493 in your pew Bibles, that's what we'll be listening to, and hopefully it'll be speaking to us and opening us up. Especially in the last few years, I've taken opportunities like breaks and vacations to try to read classic novels or pieces of literature. This is all so I can sound so elevated in front of you. For a long while, it was Mark Rutherford and George Eliot and Thornton Wilder, but this break, I found myself reading an author that I think is equally as penetrating, but shall remain nameless, because to be honest, I don't want to recommend this book to younger readers just yet. This novel chronicles some young adults in desperate search for the marrow of life, the elusive it that we're all in search of. The main character, who I'll call Marcus, is the embodiment of the person in the quest for this it. He's energetic and neurotic and insatiable, charismatic, and he totally captivates and sucks up everyone else into the vortex of his quest. It's in the context of those other characters interacting with this life force of Marcus that you get those really powerful sentences and paragraphs about human nature. They make you ache with resonance the same way when you read the painful but true observation about the human condition from someone like George Eliot, if you've ever read her. And so, throughout the story, you're drawn into the drama of Marcus. But as you find out with all great books that you discover that you're not so much reading the book as it's reading you. I wonder if you've ever known someone like Marcus, those suck-the-marrow-out-of-life kind of friends, those People who never settle, who have a kind of magnetic energy about them, who crave it. So you might think this is a little bizarre, but when I read and pray Psalm 84, I hear that kind of person praying. I hear that obsessive, passionate, and singularly devoted person praying with all the electricity of Marcus, except unlike Marcus, the psalmist hasn't found the answer in a narcissistic and destructive quest for it, but in God, the only real satisfaction to be found in the world. You don't have to get very far into this psalm before you begin to recognize this electric passion. The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the joy to the living God, my soul longs. The verb longs, honestly, to me, feels a bit tame in English. It's a rare Hebrew word, kasap, and the only other time it's used in the Psalms is in Psalm 17, 12, where it talks about a lion, which is eager, longing, craving to attack and tear apart its prey. This craving is primal, urgent, and from deep within. It's from the gut. It's instinctive. It's not measured, filtered, or thought through. It's just an appetite that needs to be quenched. 
Think pregnant woman who turns to her husband in bed at 10 p.m. and says with fiery demonic eyes, I need ice cream now, kind of thing, right? And the psalmist says, I crave God like that. My soul yearns for God, for the courts of the Lord, for the place his presence is. Now, once we get a setup like that, it becomes very hard for us to read this psalm in a bland and pious and quietly reverent manner. Because every word transposes from two-dimensional to three-dimensional and from black and white to color. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 10, a day in your courts, one day is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Explosive, nearly excessive, passionate craving for the presence of God. And the thing we have to recognize and reckon with is that this isn't just narrative. These aren't merely descriptions or recitation of one person's life and heart. This isn't something we look at and go, well, that's a good thing for the sons of Korah. Look at how passionate they are. That's awesome. No, especially we as Episcopalians in the Anglican tradition recognize psalms as prayers and songs that we're supposed to pray and sing. You don't examine a psalm from a shelf like some artifact. You pray it. The Psalms, the first book of common prayer. And once we admit that this psalm is supposed to be prayed, we're on the hook for this kind of passion. This psalm holds up a mirror to us and says, does this look anything like your prayer life? Like your faith? Do you crave God like a lion craves its prey? Do you crave God like a pregnant woman at 10 p.m.? Now, If you're anything like me, you know what that answer is. It usually comes in two forms. Number one, no, not really. I felt that in fleeting moments on my faith journey. But no, it's been a long, dry time since I could ever claim to have felt like that. Or two, no, not at all. Not ever. I've never felt like that. To the first group, the no, not reallys, there's a good word here. Because we've got other psalms that pray other kinds of prayers For those dry times, these kind of urgent craving prayers aren't the only kinds of prayers that God gives us to pray. And the Psalms, as a mini Bible, mirror the breadth of the seasons of the soul, thank God. To the second group who might say, I never have felt that, the scriptures press a question our way. Do you know the living God? Do you know what it's like to find the satisfaction of the craving and the quest of your soul in God and in God alone. And I'll let that question awkwardly dangle there just for a little bit because there'll be a deep and hopeful answer coming to you a little later. But for both groups of us who stand before this psalm mirror of a Marcus-style primal passion for the satisfaction of the person and the presence of God of the universe, there's a question before us all. Why don't I feel like that more often? I mean, right now, I crave getting out of this church and going home and playing my PS4. I crave right now heading over to brunch and eating some waffles and French toast, and now I've totally lost you. I crave right now more screen time than my parents will allow. 
I crave getting back to work tomorrow and doing the things that exhilarate and energize my passions. I crave jumping back on the political news feeds and feeling the life and energy of all the election year angst of who's right and what's wrong with America. I crave finding the perfect someone and that's what I think about all those times. All those things animate me. But no, I don't often ever feel driven by an appetite for God. And so again, why don't I feel this more often? We might find a little help from an 18th century Scottish economist who was also a pastor. And when do those things ever come together? Like, never. His name was Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote a little treatise called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In it, Chalmers rehearsed an ancient biblical insight born out of the Psalms and passed through Christian history through the likes of great saints like Augustine and Bernard, Philip Melanchthon and Thomas Cranmer. The insight is this. The human being, you and me, we run on the fuel tank of our affections. We make far more of our decisions not based on our rationality as much as we'd like to think we're that awesome, but on our appetites. We yearn for, and what we yearn for and long for from the gut, that drives all our choices. You and I are slaves to our cravings. In a lot of our decisions, we don't end up very often able to aim our wants and desires toward those things that we've rationally said are good and right. Our cravings don't follow what our rationality has said is good. Far more often, it's actually the reverse. We rationalize what we really crave. Let me avoid the heavier examples because they're too painful. And let me entertain a relatively trivial one that shows you what I mean. It's a new year. This year, the first month, January, no sweets. You're not going to eat anything with sugar in it. It's January 5. So far, so good. But this afternoon, you have to do your first round of grocery shopping for the new year. You walk into Publix. You snake your way aisle through aisle. Cookie aisle? Rationality kicks in? Nope. I'm keeping my commitment. And you pass by. Candy aisle? Rationality kicks in? Nope. I'm keeping my commitment. And you pass by. Chocolate section? Pass by. I'm doing great. And then you hit the freezer section. Ice cream. Get, me, get behind me, Satan. Man shall not live by ice cream alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there's that appetite rising up. Rationality is trying to suppress it down. But then something tricky happens. That appetite, that strong, muscular appetite, begins to employ your rationality to defeat your own previous rationality. You know what? I'm feeling strong. I've rejected all those other sweets. Let me actually pull the cart over, stare at this ice cream a bit, look it in the eye, just so I can say, I'm not going to eat you. Cart stops. You turn. In your face, ice cream. Wait, what's that? You look over to the left. Halo top. What's that number on the front? Oh, that's the number of calories? Well, that's not a lot. Wow, really? Huh. And there's that appetite starting to rev the engine of your rationality. Well, I made this whole no sugar commitment based on a calorie thing. It really wasn't about sugar per se, but more just about not getting fat. 
And that's an awfully small number of calories. Who are these sweet baby angels that work at the Halo factory anyway? I mean, the amount of calories burned by my jaw in consuming said ice cream would be more than the ice cream itself. I mean, I'm actually not looking at ice cream here. I'm looking at a bona fide weight loss strategy. And approximately 37 minutes later, you find yourself at home on the couch with 12 empty pints of Halo Top all around you crying out to God, What have I done? Who will save me from this body of death? Now, what happened there? Your appetite, your affection, what you really loved, you really craved, took the steering wheel of your rationality and drove it off a cliff. And that's a funny example, but it illustrates something very deep and very often dark about our human makeup. Because once we get into politics or relationships or pornography or alcohol or parenting or workaholism, or midlife crises, or finding the perfect sun one. Once we start to talk about those things, we recognize that slavery to our cravings is actually killing us. And Psalm 84 stands as a prophetic prayer that proclaims to those of us in bondage, it's only when you find all your satisfaction for these cravings and yearnings in God alone, who made you, And made those appetites. And made those appetites to be satisfied in relationship with him. It's only when you find satisfaction in God alone. That your insatiably weary soul will find rest. So how does that happen? Thomas Chalmers would say it can't happen ultimately on the level of rationality. I can't convince you with reason and argumentation. To drop those other quests. And to deny those appetites. Something has to happen way down in your gut, way down there in your heart, on the same level where all your desires and yearnings and cravings ultimately come from, whether they be physical or spiritual or psychological. It's what Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Chalmers made this profoundly biblical insight because you're enslaved to those affections and appetites, only something greater more captivating, more profoundly arresting. Only a greater affection has the power to expel all these other affections and claim the throne of your heart. We see greater affections expelling lesser affections all all the time. Here's one example I heard. Imagine a young teenage girl alone in her house with her boyfriend watching some Netflix together. They lean in and the affections kick in. Shoulder touches shoulder, holding hands. The appetites are kicking in. The boy leans in to kiss the girl. And for those who have been in these kinds of situations, we all know that restraint almost totally goes out the window at this moment. Deep desire trumps self-control almost every time. Inevitable. Now imagine in that moment when those strong affections have taken over and there's no turning back for this couple, that the girl's ex-marine dad walks in the house What happens to the boy in that moment? He jumps up and runs like a madman because all those yearnings and affections have been expelled. What happened? They were gone immediately. The yearning and desire to kiss the girl, the romantic affection, which is a strong desire and craving in all of us, gets expelled immediately by a greater affection, fear, self-preservation, the expulsive power of a new affection. You know, for those of us who have experienced our conversion as a point in time, which isn't everybody, 
many of us can recognize that this is precisely the expulsive power of a new affection that happens then. Jesus flooded the scene in a divine moment where for the first time the Holy Spirit made us aware of our sin and our need for him. And Jesus in that moment in all his saving grace becomes more beautiful and believable to us than anything else or anyone else that we've ever experienced. What we might not recognize, however, is that it is precisely that expulsive moment that becomes the day-to-day ongoing existence of the Christian until the day that we die. This is what we mean, actually, when we say that we're supposed to live a life of repentance, to over and over again confess our sin and need and then be seized afresh by a vision of the Savior. Psalm 84 uses the metaphor of a tabernacle of the Lord to frame the expression of the yearning of the soul for Jesus, the only satisfaction of our soul. And yet the New Testament bears witness that it's not ultimately bricks and wood and stained glass and precious metal that makes up the temple of God. It's you and me. We are God's temple, says Paul and Peter Therefore, this nave right now is a holy place, not because of the physical space, but because you are here, Christian, and God dwells in you. And so now we hear Psalm 84, and we hear this language of yearning and fainting for the courts and presence of God. When we hear all that stuff, we hear very clearly that we're talking about hunger and thirst, not for a place, but for God himself in Christ whose power and presence is near and consistently accessible through the Holy Spirit who lives in us and through the Spirit-breathed Word of God which is in our hands. We hear in the psalm of a sparrow finding its restful home among the altars of God. And we recognize God wooing us with a metaphor to say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden of all these other pursuits and these other affections, and find rest. We hear in the psalm this blessing. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And we hear the great admission, I don't have any strength of my own. I don't have any righteousness of my own. Jesus, be my strength. Jesus, be my righteousness. Let me find my all in all in you. These highways to Zion that are carved onto our heart, where do they lead? Zion, Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified. These highways in our heart lead us back again and again and again to the cross where God poured out his love for you and for me, the ungodly. And we hear in the psalm an admission of someone who has been so seized by that vision of the cross that they've actually been able to at least a bit more be freed from the sin that enslaves them, the other affections that bind them. He says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And what he's describing is that on the level of of my affections, I yearn for this more than I yearn for that. God, I love you more. You're worth far more. Why? Because though my sins are many, your mercy is more. And your love is sweeter to me than all those other things. 2 Corinthians 3 
speaks of this beautifully when it says, And we we all who with unveiled face behold the glory of Jesus are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. What veils over your face today has the Lord exposed to you? What lesser affections capture the throne of your heart today? Are you yet exhausted by them? Have they run their course with you? Have you run with them far enough that you can recognize that all their enchantments are dull and they aren't really going to pay out like you thought they would? Behold, a greater, far more captivating, far more satisfying vision than anything else out there. This Christmas and this epiphany, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away your sin, who gives you his very presence by his blood, who gives you the very courts of the Lord that we're all really seeking, who comes to you this day in love and grace and says, I'm the one you've been searching for. Find in me your all in all, because I satisfy. Let us pray. O Holy Spirit, fire of God, burn us down to only faith until all we want is all we really need. Jesus Christ himself. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.